Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. It is Friday, and I'm sure many out there are saying thank goodness for that. But there are a number of groups across Canada and the world today that are going to be taking part in another round of climate protests. Today marks the second global climate strike, with the first happening, of course, just one week ago today. There are expected to be some 200 strikes across Canada, which is just one of some 150 countries set to participate in today's global climate strike. One of those 200 demonstrations is going to be happening right here in Kamloops, and it's organized by the Thompson Rivers University Student Union Eco Club. I'm set to speak with them at the end of today's show. There's demonstration is set for 12.30 this afternoon. To kick off the second half of today's program, I'll be joined by immigration lawyer Len Saunders. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol has said that there has been a recent increase in the issuance of expedited removals, even though there has not been a policy change within CBD, CBP, nor is there a quota. There was a recent incident of a woman who lives in B.C. who was trying to visit her boyfriend who lives in California. She's a tree planter by trade, but the Border Patrol wasn't buying it and eventually handed her a five-year travel ban. That has prompted a warning to Canadians who don't own a home or have full-time permanent jobs when it comes to crossing the border. Saunders says he's seeing at least one of these travel bans per day. So obviously something for those traveling south of the border to be aware of. So I'll talk more about that with Mr. Saunders at around the 35-minute mark. And in about 10 minutes or so, I'll be speaking with Kyle Braid of Ipsos. It has released a list of topics that Canadians find most important throughout this year's election campaign. Among those was, of course, climate change and that ranked number three on the list. Ipsos also asked how much Canadians were willing to help pay to reverse climate change, and I'll just say it was a little bit less than I expected. So we'll be talking more about that in a short period of time. But to begin today's program, I'm talking about a new documentary entitled Over a Barrel. Over a Barrel is a short political documentary about the work of Vivian Krauss and the questions she raises regarding U.S. foundations funding activism against the Canadian oil and gas industry. The supposed goal of this tar sands campaign funded by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and other U.S. charitable foundations is to fight pipeline approvals in Canada and stop Canadian oil from reaching overseas markets. The documentary itself is focusing on the negative consequences that that's had on the Alberta economy as well as First Nation communities and the rising threat of Western separatism. Here to talk about this film is its producer, Shane Fennessy. Shane, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me on, and uh, that was well summarized. Good job. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I think I got a lot of that right off your guys' website, so that definitely <laughs> was a big help for me. Um, so the trailer is out. I've watched the trailer a couple of times. It's about two and a half minutes long. Um, I mean, maybe just tell me about the film itself. How long did you guys spend working on this film? Uh, how long did it take to produce? And, and maybe just tell me how long it is as well, because it says it's a short documentary. So, so what does that mean? Yeah, so the whole process has been really, really abbreviated. I mean, I got uh, introduced by a family friend to Vivian back in May. Uh, Vivian and I had discussions about uh, doing a doc on her work. Um, I was, I came to her and said, you know, I'd heard about her in the lead up to the Alberta provincial election and knew about her work and thought it was really intriguing. Um, and then a fr family friend at a gathering came and said, I got someone you got to meet, Vivian Krauss. And I was like, I know who she is. I should, I should do her documentary. He goes, yeah, you should do her documentary. Uh, so we met in May and then we were up and running by June. I think, uh, I don't know if you know this, but she started a GoFundMe to, uh, pay for the documentary. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're fully fundraised by, uh, by the people and so this film is for the people and she was 160 grand in three weeks so pretty incredible support for this kind of work
work. Um, we shot through June, July, and August, so about through two and a half, three months, uh, and we've been in post-production for the last month. So it's been a whirlwind. Like This is typically much quicker than documentaries we do, um, but it's got such an important message, and obviously with the federal election coming up, you know, people might want to get more informed on this kind of topic before they go into the, the voter ballots. So uh, how long is the actual film itself? Do you know how long the running time is? Yeah, right now it's at 31 and a half minutes. Okay, 31 and a half. So it is pretty short. Um, and, yeah. and, I mean, obviously, I mean, putting even 31 and, or 32 minutes together in four months is, is a pretty quick turnaround. Um, I guess just, just how difficult was that? I mean, how many hours were you putting in a day in order to get that turnaround? <laughs> If I clocked them, I'd probably be pretty mad at myself. But uh, no, it's you know, it's with anything in film, it, it's it's periods of go 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 nonstop. You don't look at you don't look at uh, how many hours you're working. You just have a job to do and you do it, uh, and you sleep when you can. Uh, and then there's periods where you're setting everything up, so that's a little bit more relaxed at home. Um, most of our trips were to uh, to British Columbia, so we were in central BC and then out on the coast in Haida Gwaii and in Vancouver as well. So our, our whole purpose was to, to really get into the communities that uh, that this foreign funding has impacted um, and tell the other side of the story, the story that most people don't realize, um, and that's these communities haven't been helped by this activism one bit. Um, how, how difficult, I guess, of a project was this, that given the fact that you did have to do quite a bit of travel and, and you know, throughout Canada and <clears throat> mentioned Alberta and a lot of filming done in BC, I guess, uh, you know, it must have been... A, pretty cool to kind of go to a lot of these different places that maybe you wouldn't have if you weren't doing this sort of project but just i mean how how, how strenuous was it to 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 do all this travel and to get all this work done in such a short amount of time the logistics itself weren't challenging i mean that's that's what i do i've, I've got three other feature docs under my belt and we've gone you know down to la and and Vegas and, and England as well. So, you know, the logistics were relatively simple comparatively, but um, the challenging thing was working with the First Nations groups and and, and just trying to, you know, get get their trust because we, we, you know, they've been exploited so many times before that we really wanted to, to let them know, look, we're here to tell you guys the side of the story. Um, so the, the social aspect of it was the most challenging bit. And of course, you know, when you when you're talking or doing a project on a on a topic like this, there's uh, it's polarized to say the least, and and so you kind of go in blind. You don't know anyone you talk to, whether they be someone you're asking to shoot on their property, or you don't know where they're going to fall on on the side of uh, you know environment or economy, uh, so to speak, as the old adage goes. So the, the challenging bit was definitely the social aspect of it. Uh, here with producer of Over a Barrel documentary, Shane Fennessy. Um, I understand this project also, I guess, took you a little bit out of your comfort zone when it comes to, to documentary filmmaking, I guess. So, I mean, you mentioned some of the stuff right there in your last response, just sort of how it might have been a little bit more difficult to get some of these interviews and just get more comfortable with, with the, the people that you were speaking to. I guess, is that sort of what was the, the biggest challenge for you in this, was, was working with some groups maybe you hadn't worked with in the past? Well, working with the groups, um, it wasn't challenging. It was just a slow process. The challenging bit, and stepping outside of my comfort zone, so to speak, is, is the fact that I'm sticking my neck out politically. I mean, if you've spent more than 10 minutes online anywhere, you know how how charged the discourse is about any topic that's political. Um, and if you don't agree with someone, you're, you're immediately labeled, you're immediately relegated as the other, um, and you're almost, uh, you're almost just 
is valued. So by by going out and you know sourcing this information, and and I don't pretend to be an expert on anything about resources or oil and gas or geopolitical subversion to that nature. All I was curious is is about a topic, and I wanted to get more informed, and I wanted to talk to as many people as I could, and um, and and show the viewer what I found out. So, given that in this particular message, obviously there's a lot of controversy when it comes to the to the tar sands and and what's going on in in the oil and gas industry here in Canada, um, and especially right now, like you had mentioned earlier, with it being in a federal election and and climate change policy being a major topic of uh, of of the campaigns. Um, I guess, do you have any fear about what kind of backlash you might receive as someone from making this kind of film, or or I guess even from the flip side, I guess the support you might have from from people in in places like Alberta where they are you know really advocating for um, more investment in in these kinds of industries well there's a few things i'll say to that and the first is which if if people aren't attacking your work you're probably not doing anything of 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 serious magnitude so no matter no matter what you're doing it's you're going to have people against you um I'm confident enough in in the research that I've done before starting this project on the Canadian oil and gas industry and just the whole Canada's place in, in, in the world's carbon emissions being so minimal and the oil sands being an even smaller fraction of that that I, I personally have no problem with the industry and so I feel confident in going to talk about this subject matter. Now, it's, you know, you're you're gonna get people who just read the headlines, who 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 look at the who look at the trailer and say, you know, it we're totally against what you're doing here. But again, like I tried to do with this project was just simply put out something that's going to make everyone question and think, oh, maybe we are vulnerable to something like this, like foreign funding coming in. Yeah, I liked uh, I liked the way you put that. If you're if you're not getting complaints, then you're probably not doing a good job. I've definitely received complaints about my show and I haven't been doing it for all that long so um, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what the plan is in terms of airing this I understand it's going to be airing in a couple of theaters in uh, Calgary and one in Edmonton early next month um, what, what is the plan for the rest of people who uh, obviously don't live in, in those two cities so we're, we're exploring a unique um, strategy in a couple ways um, and that is if if there's any you know business leaders or any um, community leaders um, in towns or cities across Canada that would like to organize a screening in their in their region, I encourage them to reach out to me on on Facebook or on Twitter, um, just simply because we don't have the manpower to be able to get the film to all these communities. So we focused on the main urban centers, Edmonton and Calgary, where we are, and then of course we're working on a Toronto and a Vancouver screening. Uh, possibly a Saskatoon one, but and as much as I'd like to go and set all these up, we just don't have enough time to do it. So that's one option: is if anyone feels like they want to head, spearhead a, uh, a screening in their community, to reach out to me. And then the other thing uh, that we're doing is we're working on a digital strategy to be able to get it to as many people across Canada before the federal election as well. So stay tuned on our website for for information on that. Perfect. Well, Shane, I think that uh, pretty much wraps up our time, but thank you so much for uh, you know speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. I appreciate you calling. Awesome. That's Shane Fennessy, the producer for the Over a Barrel mini-documentary that uh, will be premiering next month, early next month, prior to the federal election. And if you want to check out some other uh, information, you can go to the website overabarreldoc.com. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking election issues with Ipsos. So stick around after this.
The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back in here on this Friday morning in Kamloops with uh, just 24 days left before we head to the polls for the federal election. What are some of the issues that are most concerning to Canadians? Well, Ipsos has done its survey and it has come out with a list of the top election issues for the voting public. Here to talk about those issues is Ipsos Senior Vice President Kyle Braid. Kyle, thanks so much for joining me. Good morning, Jeff. Glad to be here. So, Kyle, today is the second day of global climate strikes, so I thought it would be fitting to kind of start there. Where does the issue of climate change rank for voters, according to the data that you guys have collected? It ranks pretty high. I mean, among the issues that we've been following in this campaign, it's the uh, third most important issue to voters, just behind uh, health care and affordability, and a little bit ahead of the economy and taxes, but really it's, it's, it's one of the the key issues that voters say that they're paying attention to and we've got almost eight in ten canadians who say that you know they feel that canada needs to be doing more on this issue than they are today um when we're talking i guess about that specifically i guess do you know how that would rank compared to previous elections i mean is it higher or lower than it would be before i don't know if you guys collected that data at all but i mean it seems like it's probably something that is a growing concern for voters Oh, for sure. It's it's much higher than it's been in the past. Uh, even in the provincial election, it wasn't in the uh, you know the top five issues. It wasn't in the top five issues in the last federal election. It's kind of hung around the uh, sort of 10 to 12 percent range as an issue, and now it's up in the uh, sort of mid 20s in terms of uh, importance for voters. So it's it is in fact not just because of the news that's going on this week around uh, climate change. It is an issue that's uh, much more front and center for voters particularly for Quebecers in Canada, but, but really across the country. And the thing that has changed a little bit is it's, uh, it's an issue both for men and women and across all age groups. So it's kind of become a, a consensus issue that, uh, that something, needs to be, uh, something needs to be done. Unless, of course, you're a conservative voter where uh, there's not much interest in the issue at all. Hmm. Um, one, one thing that I did find interesting, too, was when you're talking about climate change as number three, uh, number one being health care. That didn't really surprise me, but climate change is now ahead of taxes and the economy and when we're talking elections i mean taxes and the economy are always seems to be the top two things that are you know pushed about by those who are running for office so um i mean is that a big shift in sort of what we've seen in the past that taxes and economics are sort of lower on the list of priorities i mean they're still top five so they're not like out of the out of the realm of things that people care about but still seems lower than usual no they're not out of the uh, the running, and three of the top five issues are pocketbook issues that matter to uh, uh, you know people's incomes and their households directly around affordability and taxes in the economy. So you, if you add those together, they still uh, dwarf climate change as an issue. And what remains to be seen is climate change an issue like taxes in the economy, where we know people actually make decisions in the ballot box based on them, or is it an issue like healthcare, which everybody says is important, but isn't a differentiating issue for uh, for votes. So uh, we will see in this election whether, you know, climate change is, is something that people are paying lip service to or is it something that's actually going to impact their uh, their vote on election day. We, we don't know that yet. Uh, joined on the phone by Kyle Braid of Ipsos. So uh, you looked at the top five issues here in this specific survey. Do you guys look at other things beyond the top five? Because that's the only list I could find was just the top five issues, but I assume there were probably more issues that, uh, you know, you at least looked at in this survey, no? 
Uh, sure, they go on, but we, we go in detail on the top five, and actually NBC, not surprising, just outside of the uh, top five nationally, but uh, near the top of the list in BC is still housing, uh, which is tied to the issue of affordability, but in BC, it's actually higher than uh, than climate change as, uh, as an issue. So there are, there are differences across the regions, with housing being one that's uh, particularly important in, uh, in British Columbia. Yeah, that's not surprising to me. That's a big issue that we talk about quite a bit here on our station as well. Um, I will go back to climate change here because you guys also did a little bit more in-depth study in terms of how much people are actually willing to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to the issue of climate change. So it ranked number three on the issue of top five concerns for people voting in this 43rd federal election. But how much money are people actually willing to put towards this cause? Well, here's where the rubber hits the road and people managing to uh, pass the responsibility on to others. So when we asked how much people are willing to spend on an annual basis to, uh, to tackle this issue, half of Canadians, 46%, same in B.C., said, I'm not willing to spend anything. Uh, so there's a, a resonating number right off the top. And another 22% said, you know, maybe up to $100 uh, a year. So you've got collectively two-thirds of Canadians who say, I'm not willing to uh, spend more than $100 uh, a year on this issue that, you know, threatens our, uh, threatens our planet. So this doesn't mean that they don't think it's a priority. Uh, it might mean that uh, they think others should be responsible for paying for it. And when we looked at a number of different actions that the federal government could take on this issue post-election, what rises to the top is all the things that relate to taxing businesses, providing more incentives to businesses, uh, to moving away from uh, carbon-based industries. Those things all go to the top. And, you know, things that impact consumers and, and regular folks who answered our poll uh, go to the bottom. So it's a priority issue, but people don't want to spend money on it, uh, and they rationalize it away by saying, you know, things like uh, businesses can have more of an impact and, you know, don't focus on me, focus on focus on the, the, the big businesses who are the real, real uh, polluters and damagers here. Interesting stuff, Kyle. As always, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great. You're welcome. Awesome. That was Ipsos Senior Vice President Kyle Braid. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking with immigration lawyer Len Saunders as he's seeing more and more Canadians get handed five-year travel bans at the U.S. border. We'll talk more about why that's happening and what you can do to protect yourself after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on the Jeff Andrea Show. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in here on this last day of the work week. The U.S. Customs and Border Patrol has said that there has been a recent increase in the issuance of expedited removals, even though there has not been a policy change and there is no quota for them. A recent incident has brought this issue to my attention, where a, a B.C. woman who works as a tree planter went to go visit her boyfriend in California during her time off as she tried to cross into the U.S. Border Patrol wasn't buying it and eventually handed her a five-year ban. Now, this woman actually tried to cross at two different crossings and was denied entry of both. Does it seem to be a matter of where you try to cross the border, or are you seeing these issues more as, uh, you know, just as a whole, as every border crossing is having these issues? I'm joined now by immigration lawyer uh, Len Saunders. Len, thanks so much for joining me here today. No problem. Thanks for having me on your show. So let's start with that. So obviously this woman here specifically tried to cross in at two different border crossings and was denied entry of both. So this doesn't seem to be an issue anywhere specific. Does that, uh, does that correlate for you? 
Well, yes and no. So when she first tried to enter, she actually tried to enter um, over in Victoria on the Coho on pre-clearance. Uh, and she actually had the same incident happen about three or four years ago because she goes down to Northern California every fall. And so she was denied and told she needed to return with ties and equities to Canada, which is common. But what she did was rather than returning the next day because the ship only goes once a day, she came over to the mainland and tried entering through Peace Arch. And that's where she had her problems was because she came through a land port of entry versus pre-clearance, and that's when she received the five-year ban. So, I mean, what is it that, I mean, this has been an issue now. You, you're saying that you're seeing about one of these cases a day. I mean, I mean, how come these things seem to keep piling up? And, I mean, is this specific woman's case un, or not very uncommon, I guess, at this point? It seems to be happening pretty frequently. And I, literally, I just got a call this morning from a client or a new client uh, whose wife was also got a five-year bar about three weeks ago at Peace Arch. I used to see probably about one or two cases of these a month and it used to be and I've been doing this in Blaine for over 20 years it used to be you know the person had lied at the border or they had been caught working illegally in the US or living down here and I would say to the person you know what I hate to say this but you deserved it because they violated immigration laws what's happened since pretty much the beginning of summer in June I'm seeing rather than Canadians being denied entry if they have a lack of ties and equities, or even if they're applying for a work permit and they have maybe a deficient document, rather than just a simple denied entry or uh, the person withdrawing their application for entry, they're just being slapped with a five-year bar. And, and, you know, there's no real reason that you can attribute to that. I mean, uh, f at one point I thought maybe this was an issue related to, you know, cannabis. When that became legalized uh, in Canada, maybe it would have a bigger issue in terms of people trying to cross the border and just them being more uh, wary about, you know, whether you had smoked pot before or anything along those lines. But it doesn't seem to really have anything to do with that. Absolutely not. And what I'm seeing is not just localized here, um, south of Vancouver, um, at the you know Blaine and and Sumas and Linden ports of entry. I've seen this in in Orville, south of you, near Soyuz. I've seen this at the Sweetgrass, Montana ports of entry. So it seems to be kind of in the western, kind of northwestern sector for U.S. Customs and Border Protection, where I'm seeing these literally at every single port of entry. The same issue where you know, the, the client will call me and say, why did I get this? What did I do wrong? And I read the sworn statement because in order to give out the five-year bar, they have to go through a procedure of putting the person under oath and asking them questions. And they're just very mundane questions. And then at the end, they say, sorry, you're barred for five years. And the person's like, what did I do wrong? And I say the same thing. You did nothing wrong. I don't think you did anything wrong. Maybe you had an insufficient document for a work permit. Maybe you didn't have a bank statement or proof of your residence or employment in Canada. But the person could have gone back and got that and come back the next day and been okay. So I uh, hear with immigration lawyer Len Saunders. So with respect to that, I guess, is there anything that you would recommend to people who are traveling to the United States to make sure that they have with them or, you know, any particular answers to questions that they might be asked? Uh, you know, is there any specific uh, recommendations you can give to people to try to avoid these kinds of situations? Because it seems like it's, uh, it, it, you might not know it's coming and it just sort of gets happened, it, it gets slapped on you without your knowledge. So, I mean, is there any way to protect ourselves when we are heading south of the border? 
There are, and so I'm telling Canadians, if, if you're concerned about, you know, having ties in equity showing that you're going to return after a day trip or maybe, you know, a vacation for a month or two, bring substantial ties in equities showing your residence, your employment, bank statements, all of that. If you're applying for a work permit, make sure your application is 100% complete. However, I'm also telling Canadians, if you want a safe port of entry, go to Vancouver Airport. Even though the Americans have more um, powers at pre-flight clearance because of the Pre-Clearance Act, which was finally enacted back in July, which gives the Americans a lot more powers on Canadian soil, they still can't give out expedited removals because they're... Because they're still on Canadian soil. So if anyone's concerned, the safest place to go is to Vancouver Airport or Calgary or Edmonton um, through pre-flight clearance. And all that they can do there is deny you entry. You can't get a five-year ban. Okay, so just uh, if, you wanna, if you're really, really concerned, fly, don't drive. Absolutely. Um, I also wanted to ask about, you know, if, if you are handed these five-year bans, obviously it's uh, something that a lot of people get worried about because it's going to cost you a lot of money to try to reverse and obviously a lot of time and effort as well. Um, just from your perspective as an immigration lawyer, how difficult is it to reverse these situations? Well, you can't appeal them, so you have to apply for a waiver. Waivers cost 930 U.S. That's the filing fee. So a lot of people are like, I have to pay 930 just for the privilege to be able to come back in. And the problem is, even if you get it approved and you go back, they may do the same thing and give you another five-year bar, especially when you haven't violated any immigration laws. So I'm telling people, even if you, you know, can stomach paying the 930 it's almost an extortion fee you still may not be admissible even when you receive a waiver that's crazy so uh, i guess given that i mean how long does the process take to reverse it and and is it even necessarily worth your time well, so after five years, it goes away. And I tell clients, you can wait five years, but make sure when you return, obviously have you know, sufficient or substantial ties and equities. If you do decide to, um, to apply for a waiver, um, it's interesting because the old system used to take about four to six months, but they've actually streamlined it lately with a new online system. They're actually coming back in a few weeks. But I'm concerned about any of these cases because they're too recent. They usually look at rehabilitation for a waiver. And so these people who haven't violated any immigration laws, they have to show that they have rehabilitated from their five-year bar. So that's hard to prove when you haven't violated the law. So I'm cautioning people to apply with within the first year, you want to wait at least a year to apply for a waiver on these five-year bars. That's bizarre. So you have to be rehabilitated from essentially nothing. Exactly. It, 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 it seems crazy. <laughs> I don't know how the heck you would be able to approve that. That seems bizarre. Um, <laughs> well, since we're talking about rehabilitating, I know there was this one case that I had uh, brought up here on my show earlier in the summer. It's probably around August, I believe it was, so about a month ago. Um, there was a woman who I believe was your client who had tried to cross the border with CBD oil. Um, so th obviously, like I had mentioned earlier, I thought some of these issues were a result of cannabis. Obviously, what we were just talking about had nothing to do with that. But in this case, obviously, there was an issue when it comes to, to weed legalization. Um, this woman did fail to declare that she had some CBD oil on her. Uh, I believe didn't mean to not declare it. It just sort of 
escaped her mind, if you will. But she was actually able to uh, reverse her lifetime ban that was handed to her, which I still think is crazy that she was given a lifetime ban, let alone a five-year ban. Um, but th you were able to help reverse this case. I guess just how, how, how have these kinds of cases when it comes to cannabis been handled? And, uh, you know, how difficult is it to see these kind of reversals? Because this seemed like it was a, a pretty quick turnaround for her. Well, absolutely. So she actually was my client. Um, she was denied entry and barred for life because she had CBD oil on her, which had trace amounts of THC, which is the active ingredient in cannabis. She had no idea it wasn't allowed because she bought it legally. What's interesting about her case is rarely do you see a lifetime ban being overturned. I have two other cases similar to hers, which happened at SeaTac Airport down in Seattle. Those ones have not been reviewed. But the concern here is, is that this is going to happen more with legalization of cannabis in Canada, with all of the edibles and the, the byproducts, the lotions, the oils, which are now going to be, I, I guess, available in stores in the next six months to a year. That's what I see people running into problems. And it's not just younger um, users of, of cannabis or CBD oil. It's a lot of older people who use it for arthritis and other kind of medical reasons. If they have anything on them related to cannabis, CBD, THC, oils, um, gummy bears, if anyone is caught at the U.S. border with those items, they will be barred for life. So it's, it's automatic lifetime ban. There's no uh, potential for even a, a lesser slap on the wrist, five-year ban, if you will? It's a controlled sub. It's a U.S. Yeah. controlled substance, Schedule One, and it's crazy because where I sit in Blaine right now, it's legal. You can go into a cannabis store and buy it. You can buy it on the other side of the border in Vancouver. But if you bring any of that into the U.S., you're potentially subjecting yourself to a lifetime bar. Yeah, it's definitely bizarre given that you know it is legal in in Washington. It's legal here in 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 Canada, but yet you still can't take it across that specific border. Obviously, because it is uh, federally still illegal. So uh, something for Absolutely. for people to be aware of, I guess. So just the, the the whole message would be: make sure that you don't have any even trace amounts of of THC or, or cannabis products on you, right? Absolutely. You know, everybody, everybody knows you can't bring actually cannabis itself. Right? Everyone knows that you can't bring marijuana into the U.S., but what they don't know is all of these byproducts, and that's what I see as the new problem at the border. And once again, I think the Canadian government has done a crappy job warning Canadians. They put up these signs with marijuana leaves and a line through it saying, don't bring cannabis. What they need to do is they need to put all of the, the candies and edibles and lotions on those signs so that people know that you can't bring all of those products too. Yeah, like when you go to the airport, right, you see a list of 500 items that have uh, those lines through them, so it's a little more clear yeah. on what you can and cannot bring onto a plane. So they should probably have something similar going on at the border crossings, not just a leaf, because uh, I don't even know anyone who ever has leafs on them, by the way, so <laughs> I don't know how you could exactly. potentially even know that that was uh, not allowed. Well, Len, uh, I think that's all I have for questions for you right now. Any other message you want to send uh, to Canadian travelers before I let you go? No, just be careful when entering the U.S. and, you know, try to withdraw your application if you ever uh, are, you know, uncomfortable being answered, asked any questions. But hopefully they'll uh, slow down on the amount of five-year bars that they're issuing at these local ports of entry. Awesome. Well, Len, thanks so much for joining me here today. Definitely some interesting information, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good day. You as well. That was immigration lawyer Len Saunders.
Coming up after the break, climate change is continuing to stay front and center here on the news cycle with today marking the second global climate strike exactly one week after the first one. I'll be speaking with the organizers of a rally that's set to take place at TRU later today after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Today marks the second day of global climate strikes, and there are some 200 of these events taking place here in Canada today, and that includes one taking place at TRU, which is being organized by the TRU Student Union Eco Club, and I have a co-president here of the Eco Club here with me now in studio. I am joined by Stasha Panko. Stasha, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So why did you want to help organize an event like this? I mean, obviously, we're seeing these events taking place on a global scale, but why did you think it was important to have one here in Kamloops? Yeah, so the Eco Club's uh, mission statement is to promote sustainability and eco-consciousness on the true campus and within the greater community. So as we saw this movement of striking for the climate and Fridays for Futures and how it's been growing, it just made sense that the true students and faculty would become engaged in this as well. I mean, what, what kind of support have you seen from your, your student union uh, you know, members? I mean, have they been pretty supportive of, of these kinds of initiatives? Yes, definitely. Yeah, the response has been really positive um, that I've seen. And I'm not really sure how many students we've reached um, through social media on this, but I know there's definitely been an interest for sure, and a, a number of students and faculty attended the climate strike that was held downtown um, in Kamloops last last uh, Friday. So that was really awesome. Yeah. Nice. Um, do you have any idea how many people you might be seeing at today's event at this point? I'm hoping for a fair-sized group today. Um, we had approximately 180 people interested um, in our Facebook event that we how we were promoting it on Facebook, and we had about 100 of those people say that they were coming for sure. So, and as well as some local candidates as well said they would like to attend today. So we have our Terry Lake, um, our Liberal candidate, and Ian Curry from the Green Party as well. Nice. I'm not surprised given uh, I had a, a gentleman on earlier on the show talking about uh, top five election issues. Climate change was number three. So obviously it's something that our local candidates, I'm sure, are trying to uh, rally behind as well. Um, so tell me a little bit about the event itself. What, what are you guys planning to do? Where are you planning to start? And, and exactly what does the schedule look like? Yeah, for sure. So we're starting our strike today at 1230. Uh, we're starting at the Campus Activity Center um, on the True Campus. And we're planning to do a bit of a circle walk around around the campus, around the circle outside of the CAC. And then we're going to walk out to the road, I believe, along McGill, um, so that people passing by are able to see our march and then ending at the clock tower that's on campus as well. So for anyone who is like in the area, maybe driving by or, or whatnot, what, what kind of scene would they expect to see? Is it going to be just a, a large group marching with a bunch of signs? Do you guys have uh, some chants planned or, or kind of what are things going to look like today? Yeah, so definitely we're just a peaceful march. There will be some signage. Um, Maybe some chanting as well, but really just a peaceful walk, um, just really bringing light to the issue here on campus, yeah. Perfect. I am joined in studio by co-president of the Trusu Eco... Did I say that right? Trusu? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Okay, sorry. E yeah. Eco Club, uh, Stasha Panko. So uh, when you look at other events that have kind of taken place recently, obviously this is being part of a global climate uh, strike that's occurring globally, obviously. That's the whole point of the term. I mean, just what does that mean, do you think, when, when looking at this issue on a global scale, that this is now, you know, week two of this global strike being in the news? Um, obviously something that a lot of people are kind of really taking to heart and really trying to push that our, our political leaders take a little bit more seriously. I guess 
when you when you look at sort of the the group mentality that's kind of growing here, uh, not only in Canada but on a global scale, and obviously here in Kamloops, I guess just what does that show to you as someone who helped organize this event? Just that how how important these issues are to people, and and specifically a, a younger population here at, at TRU. Yeah, definitely, Jeff. I think that this this issue is so important, and it, it really makes me excited to see that this message is being so so brought to light right now. And that there, and then it's young young people as well that are just becoming so critically engaged, seeking information and answers, and also solutions. And it's really inspiring to see this whole younger generation standing up for the environment and just growing awareness um, for one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now. Well. As a post-secondary student, I guess, what, what do you think is sort of the responsibility of people who are kind of in this age bracket when it comes to this issue? Um, I mean, a lot of people say, you know, like older generations don't really seem to care. They're not going to be around for when, you know, we really see the, the true effects of climate change, even though they've already started. But the, the I guess the extremities of what we could see as a result of it, you know, it doesn't really matter to them in their lifetime. Um, but you know, obviously, as a younger generation, you don't necessarily want to be taking the lead because you're pushing those a little bit older to sort of have that initiative and take the lead. But I mean, do you see a, sort of a shift in in maybe the way that people are responding, especially like post-secondary students, to how uh, they want to help tackle this issue? Like, are, are you seeing uh, people being more wanting to take up jobs and, and things like that that are going to have an impact on climate change specifically? Do you hear some of that chatter around campus at all? Uh, I do a little bit. I know that the TRU Students Union does try to organize a lot of events to facilitate that kind of thought, that kind of discussion as well. Uh, I know that there is a like pizza and politics event happening next week that ends up inviting all the candidates, anyone on campus who's interested to go and just mingle and talk and bring up those conversations and see what people are saying and what are the stances, what are the issues. Um, so, so there is a bit. You you might have to search for it a little bit, but if but it is out there, especially during this time in in the election. There's a lot of interesting talk. Yeah, well, as well. It's definitely front and center right now, and uh, I'm sure it's going to stay that way at least until October 21st. We'll see what happens uh, mm -hmm. after that. Well, Stasha, thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for your time, Jeff. Awesome. That was Stasha Panko, co-president of the Trusu Eco Club, which is planning a rally here on the day of Global Climate Strike, the second Global Climate Strike Day. That'll be taking taking place starting at 1230 and running for about one hour. Well, thank you so much to everyone for tuning in today. I really appreciate you guys listening. And of course, one more thanks to all my guests for joining me. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Monday morning at 9. Have yourself a fantastic weekend.